All right, so we are in Matthew, um, Matthew 15. And uh, is everybody, you know, apparently we all missed the rapture last week, so I'm sorry. Sorry that I have not led you in a better way. Um, did anybody think because I wasn't here that, like, I made the rapture and no one else did? There's a, there's a friend of mine, Natalie Jones, said um, it was a greatness. She goes, you should have just had a pile of your clothes up on stage. Would have freaked everybody out. Um, <laughs> It was very cool. But, uh, yeah, so we're here. So we got to keep learning, you know, waiting for Jesus to come back because, it, oh, wait, it's October 21st now, right? Okay, good. So Matthew 15 where we, is where we are. Verse 29. Jesus returned to the Sea of Galilee and climbed a hill and sat down. A vast crowd brought him the lame, blind, crippled, mute, and many others with physical difficulties. And they laid them before Jesus and he healed them all. The crowd was amazed. Those who hadn't been able to speak were talking. The crippled were made well. The lame were walking around and those who had been blind could see again. And they praised the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel sorry for these people. They have been here with me for three days and they have nothing left to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they will faint along the road. The disciples replied, and where would we get enough food out here in the wilderness for all of them to eat? Jesus asked, how many loaves of bread do you have? They replied, seven and a few small fish. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, thanked God for them, broke them into pieces and gave them to the disciples who distributed them, the food to the crowd. They all ate until they were full. And when the scraps were picked up, there were seven large baskets of food left over. There were 4,000 men who were fed that day in addition to all the women and children. Then Jesus sent the people home and he got into a boat and crossed over to the region of Magdalene. So here we are at the end of chapter 15 and we hear a story very similar to one that we heard earlier and not that long ago. We also hear about uh, different healings, stuff that we've heard before. N.T. Wright in his commentary on this says, basically, why would, why would Matthew put this in again? He's already got enough to fill the book about the healings and all the stuff. And this is kind of almost an aside of healings. Why does he need to throw in more stuff? And oh, by the way, he can make blind people see. If you didn't catch that the first time he did it, let me tell it to you again. But I think there's something rabbinically styled teaching going on here. What's happening is that there's a way that rabbis teach that they will give you a verse or part of a verse. And you, because you know the scripture, know the rest of the verse and so know the lesson that the rabbi is teaching. Say, for example, I wanted to teach you about sacrifice. I maybe would go along the way of saying, for God so loved the world. He gave his only son sacrifice. I don't have to complete the verse. You know, the verse or say, I wanted to teach you about faith, deep, trusting out of the box faith. I'd say, Hey man, be Peter, get out of the boat. You'd start flooding through your mind. The story when Jesus is walking on water and Peter says, God call out to me so I can walk on water. Jesus is like, all right, come on. And he gets out of the boat and he walks on water. Faith. I don't have to tell you the story. I just have to give you a few hints as to where I'm going. And you fill in the rest. Because if you come at it for yourself, it means a whole lot more than if I just spoon feed it to you. 
This is a very rabbinic style of teaching. So what Matthew is doing here is he's being a good rabbi in that he's giving you a verse from Isaiah. Two verses, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. At the end of that first section there, it talks about how uh, the lame could walk, the cripple were made well, the blind could see. Immediately, because you are well versed in the Old Testament, because you have studied it for them, you, you knew the Torah, you knew the prophets, so you knew Isaiah. You knew that he was talking about Isaiah 35. Of course, you wouldn't have said 35, but you would have known it was Isaiah. When Isaiah brings the prophet from God that hope is coming. All of chapter 35 is about the hope for salvation for the people of Israel. It's about when someone comes to bring these things, people will be healed. The world will be different. It is a clear sign of the Messiah's coming. So when Matthew says this, you intuitively know that he's talking about Isaiah 35 and that this Jesus is he. This Jesus is the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for. This is the guy. How many times do I have to tell you, Matthew's basically saying, this is the one. And so then he goes on and he tells the story of the feeding of 4,000. If you think about it, as you read through the book of Matthew, it wasn't, but I can turn the page once and get to the feeding of the 5,000. And let's be honest, feeding 5,000 people is a much bigger deal than feeding 4,000 people. I mean, really, there's like a thousand more people. Plus all the women and children. And he had less food. If you go back and read the feeding of the 5,000, there was less food to feed more people. That's a cooler miracle, really, than the 4,000. The 4,000 is just like, really? That's all you got? I remember a time. Just kidding. Do you think Jesus, when the disciples get, are, are like, hey, where are we going to get the food? goes, really? Really? You know, do you not remember? But why does he pick this to put so close? Now, one of the things that you have to realize is, although we read the text and it takes us very short period of time to get from the feeding of the 5,000 to the feeding of the 4,000, there's a little bit more time than you might expect that transpired between those two events. How do we know this? Well, you have to look at the text. You have to look at the clues that are there. You also have to look at the corresponding stories in the different gospels. So what we know that's happening right now is Jesus, uh, in verse 21, Matthew 15, he leaves Galilee, goes north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So Mark 7, if you flip over to Mark 7, this is the feeding of the uh, 4,000. Jesus left Tyre, went to Sidon, and then back to the Sea of Galilee, on to the region known as the Decapolis. The ten towns. This is a very Greek region. So where Matthew is speaking about the feeding of the 4,000, this is what's going on. Jesus leaves to go to Tyre. He goes into Phoenicia. That's a long walk. You know, he wasn't by plane, wasn't by car. He was walking. That's a long journey. And then in order to get to the Sea of Galilee, he goes north again to Sidon and then comes down. It's as if you were in San Antonio and it was Memorial Day weekend and you wanted to go to Port Aransas 
you would first go to Austin, of course, because that is the quickest way in which to get to Port A, isn't it? From San Antonio, you go up to Austin and then come back down. Well, no, that's ridiculous. But this is what Jesus does. Jesus goes from San Antonio, he goes all the way up to Austin, and then he comes back down to Port A, to the Decapolis. Now, this probably took him many months. Another one of the clues that we can look at is when Jesus is, is feeding the 5,000, uh, he tells them to sit down on the grass. The word is very clear that it's grass, to sit on the grass. The only time that there would have been grass around the Sea of Galilee is the springtime. So he goes off and he travels along. And then here at the feeding of the 4,000, when he tells them to sit down, he tells them to sit down on the ground. The Greek word he uses there is epitingin, which means ground or earth, dirt. It's a different time period. So many months have transpired. What happened in those six months, say? What happened in the time from when he fed the 5,000 to the 4,000? Well, we know a couple of things, but not a whole lot. What I can probably bet is that it was a very formative and beautiful time for the disciples. Getting to spend time with Jesus. Just nothing to worry. Just you go and you sit at the feet of the rabbi and you learn and you soak it in and you become the people he intends you to be. And then he brings you back down to this region that you had never been before. This region where, as he sits down on the mountainside, there was probably as many, if not more Gentiles sitting around you than there were Jews. So you come into an area that's a little unfamiliar with you, that you're a little shaky about, that you don't know really what's going on. People that are different. People that if you touch them, you become unclean. If you touch the dirt where they had walked, you become unclean. There's all of these rules that the Jews know, and you're walking into this area. Whew. How cool is that? Now, how do we know that there were probably Gentiles there? One, the region that it says, the ten towns, some of your translations may say. It was an area of ten Greek cities. There were Gentiles there. Another thing is when they pick up the food left over from uh, the feeding in the first one, the story of the 5,000, the word for the baskets that is used there is uh, kofinos, which is a narrow neck flask like shaped basket. The Jews would have carried these baskets with them when they would travel. Because you never know when you're going to go into a place and the only food that is offered to you is food that has been touched by Gentiles' hands. You can't eat that food. So you carry your food with you. The word for basket used in the story of the 4,000 is spurus, which is a wide open hamper-like basket, which was used very much so by the Gentiles. So here you go. Here's the story. Why is the story of the 4,000 here? I think it's to remind us once again, Matthew, from the very beginning, about a year and a half, two years ago, when we began Matthew, we said that Matthew's goal is to set Jesus up as the new Moses, essentially. He is Moses, but so much more. He is Moses, but better. He came to bring salvation to the Jews, but wait, there's more to the Gentiles as well. He's the one. 
All along, Matthew is showing us and pointing to us and seeing these eat at Joe's signs going, "Eh, eh," you know, pointing to Jesus as this is the Messiah. He came for all of us so that we may have something more. All the time, Matthew is pointing us this direction. This is another one of those examples. Jesus coming into an area where he is spreading his love. Now, he doesn't spend a lot of time there. Three days, it says. But he's setting it up so that his disciples understand that it's not just about them, that it's about the world. And so he sits down and he takes care of these Gentiles and he feeds them. You know, the, the thing that I, I love about this is um, Jesus was Jesus wherever he went. Whenever the day occurred, he was Jesus. From moment to moment, he was who he was. What I mean is this. In the gospel stories, when you hear about the teachings of Jesus, the healings of Jesus, think about it. How many of them take place in a synagogue? How many of the major moments in the life of Jesus take place in a synagogue? A church, if you will. How many of them inside the walls of a church? Just a few. Really just a handful. The vast majority of what he taught us, of what he did, happened outside the walls of the church. Happened on a hillside. Happened down by the shore. Happened in somebody's house. It happened everywhere. It wasn't relegated to one location. And then when? When did he do these things? Was it on the Sabbath? Yeah, a couple of times it was. A couple of significant moments in the life of Jesus and his teachings happen on the Sabbath. But the vast majority do not. In other words, Jesus didn't, didn't limit himself to, it wouldn't have been Sunday anyway, we'll, we'll say Sunday, to Sunday morning at church. He didn't go, oh man, i got to be God right now. Hold on. I'll be back in an hour. Okay, that's done. I can get back to carpentry. Somebody didn't walk alongside him on the road and say, you're the Messiah. I want to reach out and touch you and be healed. And he goes, oh, it's Tuesday. I don't give out healing till Sunday. No. He was God all the time. He was living his life so that people may experience the love of God every moment. Didn't matter where he was. In the worst place in society and the best place in society. At the darkest of hours, noonday, it didn't matter. He was God. And yet we find ourselves sometimes limiting God to one hour, one specific day of the week. And we say, okay, here's my Jesus moment. I'm going to grow close to Jesus right now. Oh, Crocker, it's almost 12 o'clock. You better wrap it up, man. I got things to do. Because my Jesus time is almost over. Really? I mean, if we are to be disciples of Jesus Christ, if we are to be Him in the world, then this is a very small part of what we ought to be doing. God is everywhere. 
everywhere. And we just get to be where he is. To find those moments where he's moving and to move into it. Corbin asked us last night as we were on, we were on the way home from, um, from some friends invited us to the lake and we're on the way home in 35. And Saturday night, Memorial Day weekend, traffic was just humming along. Um, and so, I mean, it was just like, you know, it was horrendously painful. And, uh, and so we're going along very slowly and we go by there. There's a rest stop north of town. And, uh, and Corbin's like, can you go over there? He's like looking for an exit, you know, <laughs> I like, I like where your head's at son, but no. Um, I said, that's a rest area. What's a rest area? Well, it's where people go to rest. You know, you take a break and there's some diesel trucks lined up there. And Jenna said, well, you know, some of the, you see those big trucks over there. Sometimes they, they take a nap. They'll pull over. They have a bed in the back of the truck and they sleep and they watch TV or whatever. And they take a break because they have to travel so much. And I want a bed. Well, you have a bed, son. It's at home. No, I want a bed right now. No, you know, I, I want it now. And he just gets on this three-year-old tantrum of he wants a bed and he wants it now. And I'm like, absolutely not. And then it moves on to, I want everything in the whole world. (laughs) How did we get from a mattress to like everything? But okay. And then he goes, and I want God to live at our house. (laughs) And so Jenna looks at me and I look at her and I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I'm driving. (laughs) Sounds like a mommy question to me. You know, it's, uh, I want God to live at our house and, you know, cause we don't want him to live at the Spielhagen's, you know, uh, just ours. They're not here. I can say that. Uh, so, so she walks him through, you know, well, well, God does live at our house, but, but God, you know, lives everywhere. God's everywhere. Well, wh- where do we see God? So Jenna goes into her, well, you know, we, we get to see God in, in these moments where we're, we're all lapped because we had all just been giggling and, and Gracie now, uh, if you ask her what a cow says, she'll go, it's mm. <laughs> awesome. But you know, it, you know, it's a big deal for us. So, you know, we're, we all like, we like moo down 35. Uh, it's great. Uh, and so we're doing that and you know, I, mommy sees God when, when Gracie moves and when we giggle as a family together and, and we see God when people help us out and we, and she's going through all these moments, you know, various places that we see God and we get to interact with God. And it's not just never once did she mention Sunday morning? Never once. It was all about every moment of our life when we get to meet with God. So she's like, God's everywhere. God's with us here in the truck as we're going home. That's the thing. By the way, I looked at her and she goes, you have anything to add? I'm like, like what? I have no idea. That was awesome. That was great. You want to preach tomorrow? God is everywhere. God, God is here. Yes, absolutely. And he loves when we come and we worship and praise him. And I, I know it just blows his mind when we raise our hands and get out of our comfort zone. I don't do it all the time either, so don't feel guilty. But God doesn't just stay here when we leave the room. He doesn't go, oh, man, I'm going to be lonely for a week. I can't wait till they come back. Come on, Sunday. Because God's already out there. When we leave the room, he, he's like, hey, I was waiting on you. Where have you been? Took you a long time to get out the door. 
That's great. Let's be together. Let's do stuff together. Let's go share my love with other people, with your family, with your friends, with people you don't know. Let's blow someone's mind today by being me to them. How awesome is it that we get to be the hands and feet of Christ and we get to bring his love to a world that desperately needs it. But what we got to remember is he doesn't stay here. Jesus didn't operate in the synagogue one day a week. He operated his entire life for God. That's our call as well. When Jesus finally at the end of this book, when we get there in five years, says in his great commission, go into the world, not go into the church, go into the world and teach people about my love. Let's get up. Let's go. None of y'all are Jewish because you would have been gone by now. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for being in our life. God, we thank you so much that you have given us this day, that today the sun rose, that today we woke up with a breath. God, we thank you that you are with us each moment of our life, even in those moments when we don't recognize it. God, help us to see with new eyes where you are and to join in your work, spreading your love throughout this world. God, we thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.